you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, we're going to be looking at the first nine uh, verses, and we're going to be talking about the parable of the barren fig tree. So a very short parable, but I think there's a lot there as we get into it that we can see that would apply to us as Christians. Actually, the parable starts in, in verse 6, but I'm going to begin reading in Luke 13, the first verse. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 of whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. So I'm in Luke chapter 13, the first nine verses. So when you look at this parable, and just like many other ones, um, that we've talked about, you can first see a bit of a warning, but then you can also see the reward. And I think this parable, too, would fall in a similar type of category when we look at it. So when you think about the fig tree in this parable, who do you think it, it would represent? Us. It would represent us. Um, and I think if we think about that, God expects us to be fruitful in our lives, doesn't he? just like the fig tree was expected to be fruitful. But in order, I think, to fully appreciate the parable, and I'm going to go back and do a little bit of background, and bear with me, I'm going to do a little bit of reading because I think it kind of helps lead up to fully appreciate how this parable was given. But let's, let's go back to Luke chapter 12 and begin in verse 13. And if you remember, this was the parable in, involving the rich fool that we talked about. And I thought, think this also kind of falls into, uh, into warning and reward aspects of the parables that we talked about. And I'm going to read from 13 to verse 21. It says, Then one from the crowd sent, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
So when we talk about being rich toward God here, that would fall, I think, very much in like the category of the fig tree being fruitful. We've got to lay up our treasure towards God. And we know when we were talking about this parable, how that the rich fool really didn't think about his neighbor that may not have crops. He didn't think of, of really anyone else other than himself in the fact that he wanted to tear down and build bigger barns and keep everything for himself. But it warns us, hey, we, we never know when our time is, is going to come to an end. And while we're here on earth, we should be fruitful and multiply. And then um, when you look at this in the context of these parables being given, in verse 1 of chapter 12, you can see a reference to a crowd. It says, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude, multitude of people had gathered together, yes, that's easy for me to say, so they had trampled one another, he began to speak to his disciples first of all. So in, like in the parable that we're talking about today in the parable of the rich fool, it all lends us to believe with the sequence of events that this same multitude was still with Jesus. He was teaching this same multitude. Then we get into Luke chapter 12, and let's go down to verse 22. And I'm going to read, again, another lengthy reading, but I think it kind of helps set the, the stage for today's lesson. 22 through 34, where the disciples were admonished not to worry about the uncertainty of life, because what it does, it tells us that God's in control here, and he will take care of us. So verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither st storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worry can add one cubic to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give, give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moths destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So again, it, it says where, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And if our treasure is in God, we're going to be fruitful and do what he would have us to do. And then, really the last long reading here, let's look at verse 35 where they're, they're talking about being prepared for the return of the master. And here it's referring to Jesus' own return as we look at this. It says, let, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master 
when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may be open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. As surely I say to you, that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or the third watch, and find them, so blessed are those servants. But now, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what, what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you should be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to us or to all the people? And the Lord said to him, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom the master will make ruler over his household to give them the portion of the food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying this coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat, drink, and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him, and at that and at an hour when he is not aware. And he will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do accordingly to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So I think we see here, too, with knowledge comes responsibility. So the more we know, the more we're blessed with, the more responsibility that we have. And again, it's talking about um, a reward here if we're properly prepared, but it's also warning us that the other side can take place as well if we're not properly prepared. And then um, he warned the disciples of their life of service for him would not always be peaceful. And we can see this in Luke uh, 12, 49. And it is true, and I'm sure as we read this, you can probably relate. Uh, if you think about being a Christian, I know we've all heard and told stories and, and you know, from time to time of how it's caused division in family and things of that nature. But that's, that's what we're being warned about here is... Uh, no matter what it takes, we must always put God first. So in 49, it says, I come to send fire on the earth, but, I, but how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother-in-law, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So we can see that there's at times, and that's, yeah, I mean, it, it, you're laughing, but... Uh, it can get interesting with in-laws, whether religion's involved or not sometimes, right? So, But anyway, we can see here that the gospel will cause division from time to time. 
And, uh, and it's not that God wants anybody to perish, but we just have to understand that there's some that will accept, there's some that won't accept. So it's in this context kind of leading, leading up to this that, that we get to the parable that we want to look at today, which is the parable of the fig tree. So back over to Luke chapter 13. So this parable that we're looking at today is the only, it's only recorded in Luke. But if you think about fig trees, they've been used throughout the Bible, throughout the Old and New Testament um, as references. And it was pretty much a familiar sight in this day and age with the, with the fig trees. And I think the fact that they were pretty familiar with it provided the fig tree a good example for Jesus to use in his teachings. Uh, one of the commentaries I looked at, which was uh, Barclay, he provided, I think, some pretty good insight about the fig tree, and I think it helps kind of put things in perspective. And I'm going to read it here just as he wrote it. It says, the fig tree was the most valuable of all trees. It was naturally very productive and bore three crops within a year. It was, in fact, normally in fruit for 10 months in the year, which is pretty much very uncommon for something to be in fruit for 10 months of the year. It says that April and May were the only two months when figs were not found upon its branches. It says, for this very reason, it was common to find fig trees planted among the vines. The fig trees were much more certain than the vines, and they were a standby fruit if the vines were to fail. It says, normally a fig tree did not bear fruit within the first three years, so it was normally the fourth year before you'd see uh, fruit on it. And the point of the parable is that the master had waited the three years for the fruit to be on the tree, but at the end of that period, it was still unproductive. So as we saw here in this parable, he wanted it cut down. It says, but the vine dresser pleads for another chance, which would be the last chance of all. So I've kind of rambled on a good little bit here. Any questions or comments, I guess, up to this point? But it also said that fig trees were very helpful in this part of the world due to the hot nature of the environment. They had good foliage on them, and they also provided uh, good shade as well. And they said that it's often symbolic of the shade that God provides for each and every one of us when you think about the fig tree. And it was also a symbol of peace and prosperity. Uh, we don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read 1 Kings 4.25. It says, In Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So as we said, fig Fig trees were often symbols for God's people if you look both in the Old and the New Testament. And I think one other thing we need to consider here as we're looking at this parable, especially when we look at the first three verses, is that the Jewish people believed that sin caused sickness, it caused disease, it also caused painful death. And one example, let's turn over to John chapter 9, 1 through 3, we can see here. John 9, 1 through 3, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So we can see that, very much like we said, they believe that 
that sin was really related to pain and suffering in your life and also to death. And that's what we see when we were looking at the first three verses here where it says there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 of whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that's what they were trying to do is link these two events to some type of sin that these people were, were deserving of it. But again, he's giving them a warning. Hey, you could be as bad or worse off than they are unless you repent. And that's, I think, a stern warning to us today. You know, sometimes we look at ourselves and we think, you know, I'm not, that, I'm, not as, I'm not as bad as Mitzi is or I'm not as bad as Susan or Smitty. So, hey, I've, I've got it made. You know, people aren't our benchmark. Jesus Christ is our benchmark. He's the only perfect man. And we, we can't necessarily relate sin to, to these type of things or these type of events. So it's in this context here that Jesus is dealing with the same question as we see with the Galileans being killed uh, for their sin in the, in the Tower of Siloam. Now, I'll tell you, I was reading, and I, because one thing that interests me was talking about the Galileans being killed and their, and their blood being mixed with the sacrifices. There's not a whole lot other than what we have here to understand this. Uh, most of the time, if you find something in the Bible, a lot of times you can find some historical event to link it to. But if you look, there's not a whole lot here. Obviously, they understand understood more than we understood today. But from what I could read in some of the commentaries, it's of the opinion that maybe the soldiers come upon them while they were offering sacrifices, so they were killed while they were offering sacrifices, but there's nothing really to necessarily back that up more than uh, speculation. So unless you guys know more about that than I do, that's about all I could find on it. Yeah, and that, that's very possible. And, that, yeah, unfortunately we don't know, but it's interesting that, like I said, how you can link a lot of things to history books, but here, here is pretty much silent. So going back to... Um, the parable, which is the last re- last uh, few verses of what we read here. You think about fig trees, and the owner of the fig tree wanted to cut down, but trees are normally cut down, you know, for a purpose. You know, people just don't cut down a tree to cut down a tree. Uh, they could be cut down because they do not fulfill the purpose, and that's the case that we see here is that it did not produce fruit. So if it was only there to provide shade and it provided shade, then it would fulfill its purpose. But we can see that this tree didn't fulfill its intended purpose. And they may be cut down for the product. You know, we see a lot of logging that takes places uh, from time to time. So it could be for the wood so things could be built. Our trees are cut down. When, When you look at how some of these neighborhoods are put together today or these shopping malls, what looks like, trees, a good wooded area, next thing you know, there's nothing there. So they could be cut down for a num- number of reasons. 
But in this case here, we can see that the master wanted it cut down for a more productive reason. He wanted it to produce fruit. He wanted something else there. And the owner wanted the tree to remove, remove because he says, why should it use up the soil? And I think here it starts to lead to a good lesson for us. Why should it use up the soil and take on the nutrients that could be used for something more productive? And when you think about that, I think a, a direct correlation here is to inactive Christians that are in the church and how they could sometimes do more harm than, than good. You think about they are consuming the soul. When you think about that, you take a Christian that's trying to live for God on Sunday but trying to live in the world the other six days of the week, and then other people see how they're living, being part of the world, and then they're trying to have influence on others to come and be part of the congregation here or visit. And they look at that person and they say, well, you know, you're no better than us. You're living just like we're living. You're doing some of the same things we're doing. So when you think about that, if we're not producing fruit and we're doing the things of this world, it can it can hurt our influence on others, and it can also hurt the church because we're a reflection of the church when we're out in the world. And also, uh, like one uh, commentary brought out, it says they can occupy the time of the church leaders and deprive others of their needed attention. And going going along with what we were talking about with being uh, non-productive, it says, have you ever heard the excuse, and I'm sure we all have, I'm not going to go there because of all the hypocrites there. Well, again, trying to live in the world. We're not being fruitful. We're not living what we say. And so, you know, it's not a good excuse, but it does provide an excuse for somebody uh, not to want to come here. So any questions or comments on that? Yeah, good point. And, and repentance is to turn away from something. It's not to say I'm sorry and keep right on doing it, but it's, but it's to turn away. And you're right. It's not once saved, always saved. And just because we repented because or when before we were baptized doesn't mean we never need to repent again. We can all fall short. We know we can fall from favor with God. And so there are times when, when we do need to repent, and maybe based on the sin, that's, a, that's a, a private repentance, or based on what's taking place, maybe it needs to be a public repentance. So that's something that each of us have to work out. But it also says that the master's patience had worn out. It says he had expected uh, fruit for three years and for it to be productive. It wasn't, so he wanted it removed. And when you think about that, God can grow tired of our continual uselessness as well. And uh, you look at the history in the Old Testament, think about the Israelite people. How many times did he get frustrated with them? A lot, yep, I saw, saw you saying a lot back there. But uh, it's thank, thanks be to God that, you know, even though he got frustrated, he did, he did have patience with them. And, you know, he has patience with us, thank goodness, or we might be wiped off the face of this earth too. Yes, Eric? Yeah, it's not, it's not free, is it? It, it. We each of us have our own cross to bear, and we have to give back, and we have to produce fruit. Um, but but yeah, you're right. He 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 is the ultimate investor in that. 
as long as we have breath in us, we have a chance. We have a chance to come back if we fall away. So um, we have, we've got to do our part. He's done his part to provide that opportunity. Yeah, that's a very good point. I didn't come across that in my studies, but it is kind of a, a unique time frame and the fig tree being a, an example of how that kind of ties together there. Because he was. He was rejected by his own, right, by his chosen. Yet in spite of all this, God is merciful to us. He does give us another chance. The vine dresser, as we saw here, he pled with his master to give him one more year. He wanted to dig around the tree. He wanted to fertilize it, give it an opportunity to produce fruit. Then he says, if it doesn't produce fruit, we'll cut it down. What was the master's response here? It's interesting because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us whether he agreed to let it grow for another year or cut it down. So I found that kind of interesting too, but I think knowing God and the fact that he is long-suffering, I think we can only assume that it was probably given another year, but it's not real clear in the text whether that happened or not. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what we were reading a few minutes ago. If the owner of the house had known which hour the thief is coming, we'd all be sitting there on the couch with a shotgun, right, waiting on him. Just go ahead and kick that door in. I got something for you. But we don't know. But it does It does tell us we always have to be prepared because we don't know. Yes, Eric? Romans 1, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, somewhere in us, and I know, you know, we all have our struggles from time to time, but if we're desiring God, he's going to provide that opportunity for us to come back. But, like you said, if our hearts just get so hard, there is no way we're ever going to seek him and, and come back. I, like we like you said in Romans 1, he just turned them over to let them do what they desired. And uh, that's unfortunate, but I think there's a lot of people to get to that point in their life. It says, we know for certain, though, that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. So when we look at the illustrations of the Galileans, and it looks like we're going to finish up a couple of minutes early here, and the victims of the Tower of Siloam, it is maybe a little difficult to identify with the purpose of the parable here when there's not a whole lot more to go on um, other than what we see here. But it says, Jesus is certainly warning us to see the importance of faithfulness. He's also warning us to see the importance of being fruitful. So I think some things we need to remember as we finish up here, that even though we're God's chosen, as we were just, and Eric brought out from Romans chapter 1, we can become useless. If we no longer are trying to bear that fruit, if we no longer have a desire to please God, we can become loose, useless. Also, we can be lost even though we're among other Christians. Some of us sitting here today could be absolutely lost. Just because we're sitting here in a Bible study, just because we're surrounded with Christians, your faith doesn't save me and my faith can't save you. It's an individual responsibility and we have to realize that no matter what I might do, I mean, I can't ride the coattails of my dad in whatever fruit he may have produced in his life for God, and vice versa. It's all an individual responsibility. We all must work out our own salvation. So I think that's something we really need to think about. Um, 
just being here doesn't make us a Christian. It doesn't make us saved. There are certain things that we have to do. Just because I have a book laying on my coffee table at home doesn't mean I understand what's in it unless I picked it up and read it. And I think that's what we all have to realize. And each of us has the ability to, to bear fruit. I think we can all, we all have become discouraged, as we were saying from time to time with Satan. But I think if we realize that if we continue to cultivate, fertilize our lives with the word of God and exercise Christian living, we may be given a, a fertile future in serving God. So it's about, even when we're struggling, some of the, one of the best things you can do is pick up the Bible and read it. It can just change your whole mindset when you're struggling. But if we don't, we push it aside. We say, you know, I can just handle this on my own or I just don't care anymore, give up on God. It's not going to help us. We've got to feed ourselves with that fertilizer. We've got to feed ourselves with the word of God to overcome the struggles that we have. So that's all I had today unless there's any other questions or comments, Mr. Smith. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, you can't just look at somebody and say, sorry about your luck. And you kept pointing at Cheryl when, when yeah, so I don't know if maybe there's something there, but yeah, yeah, but we do. I mean, that that's one reason that, you know, we have fellowship meals together. That's one reason we have these Bible studies is to edify one another, to build one another up, to help us all become stronger. And when you do see a brother in need, we do have a responsibility to help. Um, turn an erring sinner from his ways and to, you know, to help uh, build each other up. So very good point uh, to bring that out, that we do have a responsibility. But, you know, in the end, we each, we each have our own responsibility to work out our own salvation. We can help each other, but there's nothing I can do to force it on anybody, and there's nothing you can do to force it on me. It's just something that we have to continue to, to encourage and work with one another. And I think, you know, you have these Bible studies, you have these fellowship meals and different things, and you spend time with, with Christians. It's easier to be a Christian when you surround yourself with Christians, isn't it? It's a little bit more difficult when you surround yourself with people of the world and only show up here for one hour on Sunday mornings. It's easier to fall into that trap of the world. So I think we got to realize that when we look at where we spend our time, who are we spending it with and, and how are we spending it? Where are we spending it? Thanks for your time.